Almost every week, it seems there's a new story out about the horrors of plastic pollution, sometimes focused on its impact on wildlife, others zeroing in on the ways we collectively contribute to the some 8 million pieces of plastic that find their way into our oceans every single day. Plastic pollution is seen by many as a crisis, with think tanks, nonprofits, and academics all searching for sustainable solutions to the problem. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Roland Geyer. Geyer is professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In his work, Geyer focuses on issues related to environmental sustainability with a specific focus on pollution and pollution prevention strategies. Roland, thank you so much for being here with us today. Glad to be here. Uh, can you just explain a little bit how you got into this line of work? Right. So my field is called um, industrial ecology, um, which sounds great, but then typically people immediately ask me what, what it is. Yeah. <laughs> industrial ecologists study material and energy flows in society, so in production and consumption activities. And so... Um, I have a track record of studying metals like many of my colleagues. And then about 10 years ago, I started getting interested in plastics and realizing that um, we didn't really know that much about plastic, how much we make, how much we use, where it goes when we're done with it. Uh, despite its ubiquity in daily life, it's really everywhere. If you look around you, um, you probably look at you know half of the uh, things you look at are made of plastic or contain plastic. Is there a particular uh, surprising product where we encounter plastic that we may not think about that? Um, I would I would say it's it's really everywhere. Um, I mean, there are some some interesting um, sort of statistics. Um, for example, I believe uh, airplanes are now fifty percent by mass made of plastic. Oh wow, which is surprising. Yeah. Um, cars, I believe, are uh, made about 30 to 40% out of plastics these days. So, you know, even though we think of airplanes, we think of things, you know, like tin cans made of aluminum and cars, things made out of steel, that's that's no longer true. And another, actually, the second largest um, user of plastic is construction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even our buildings are just full of plastic. So how do we know that there have there are 8.3 billion tons of plastic that have been produced since 1950? I think that's the right number. So how do we even know know that? So the I mean I would say we we don't know for sure, but it's it's a it's a fairly I would say robust estimate. And for those kind of data, we typically have to rely on um, industry statistics, mm -hmm. right? So the industries um, do typically um, create these production statistics themselves, um, or sometimes they commission, you know, like uh, consultancies to um, conduct surveys and then extrapolate those numbers to, to give you a total. And it turns out that for... 
um, global plastic production, we, you know, there are production statistics reaching back all the way to um, at least 1950, which by many is sort of um, seen as the uh, beginning of plastic mass production. Mm -hmm. So we can actually, you know, it's, it's relatively simple. All we have to do is collect plastic production data for every single year starting in 1950 and then just add it all together. And it turns out that it's this um, 8.3 billion metric tons. That's the number up to um, uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. Since then, we added um, another billion tons, wow. believe it or not. <laughs> I, I like how when you describe that and we're reporting it, you, you use the idea of this would cover all of Argentina up to kind of ankle deep in plastic. I thought that was a really nice way. What what kind of led you to, to using that image? It's, um, yeah, I, I want to apologize to Argentina. <laughs> that. I'm, not, I'm not proposing we're doing this. But, um, when, when, we, when we came up with the results, you know, like even, even people that do this for a living, these, uh, the technique is called material flow analysis. Um, it's sometimes hard to just get your head around the significance and the meaning of those figures. Um, so we actually had a little internal competition where we said, you know, like who comes up with the best idea of uh, visualizing um, 8.3 billion metric tons. And mm -hmm. we came up with, you know, we turned it into blue whales <laughs> and into Eiffel Towers and into elephants. So it's like 1 billion elephants mm -hmm. uh, worth of plastic. Um, but then they were all kind of mass-based, and we mm. thought they were still, you know, maybe not quite as intuitive as they could be. So my idea was to actually turn the mass into a volume uh. and then spread it out really thinly, right, ankle deep, and see how much area I could cover. Mm -hmm. And it just turned out to be more or less exactly the, the size of Argentina, which is you know, uh, the world's eighth largest country. You know, the, the public, when they get a number like that, that's, that's so large, it feels overwhelming. And it feels so overwhelming sometimes. Where do you even, where do we even begin to, to tackle some, a problem like this? And it's almost like, well, you know, what can I do other than just recycle and all of the little things that I think each of us try to do to, to do our share? Uh, I think you have a proposal for what we really need to do. But uh, just the sort of overwhelming nature. That's why I like the Argentina idea, because it at least gives us a way. Oh, I can think about that. I know, I've looked at a map. I know how big Argentina is. So just the scale of something like this, how do you even sort of approach something that's this massive of a problem? I, I think for an individual, you know, just like a concerned citizen, th those things can be really overwhelming. And I think it's important. And, and maybe that's one of the, the, the outcomes of research like this is like, you know, no, now what do we do about this? Mm -hmm. And I think as, as you're saying, quite literally and, uh, the the problem is too big to just leave it to consumers and households mm -hmm. to figure it out. I think just the you know the sheer magnitude of that issue makes it very clear that just um, you know appealing to households to throw more things into their blue bin or maybe you know uh, change their consumption habits alone is not going to stem 
that ever-growing tide of plastics. So it, it will require everyone you know, involved in the supply chain, uh, in particular, the companies that produce the plastic, the companies that use the plastic. But I think, you know, like without good environmental policy on every level, municipal, state, and hopefully one day federal, I think we won't, you know, it, it, it will remain an, an almost intractable problem. Mm -hmm. In that, in that uh, Guardian article, I love this idea of the inaction hero. Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about I mean, that and what about. that means? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, I was, I was, um, yeah, I, I sort of come, came up with that vision because I'm, uh, you know, as, as I noted there, um, I, I, I had so much, I get so much response and, you know, everyone, there's virtually no one who isn't, you know, who says like, oh, I don't mind having plastic in the ocean. You know, like what's what's the big deal? There's like lit literally everyone sort of thinks like that. That's not a good thing. And we, we don't like that. Um, and then there's just there are so many people that then want to do something about it, which which is great. But then they want to go out and clean up the ocean. Um, you know, and the, the most famous example is Boyan Slut, the, the young uh, Dutch man that... Uh, you know, builds these giant boom structures, which ironically are made out of plastic and <laughs> wants to put them in the middle of the Pacific and then, you know, clean up these um, great Pacific garbage patches in these ocean gyres, even though that there is scientifically, there's, you know, e increasing um, agreement that the vast majority of plastics in the ocean is actually not in the gyres. That you know, most of the plastic is probably on the on um, the ocean floor, mm. right? The average depth of the ocean is fourteen thousand feet, so I don't think we'll clean up the ocean floor anytime soon. So that just leads me to the logical conclusion that if we're serious about plastic in the ocean, we need to rather than trying and clean up the ocean, um, we need to stop the tap. You know, we need to stop plastic from flowing into the ocean and and. And obviously, the by far the easiest way to do that is just not produce and use plastic. So not. So that's kind of for me. That sort of this brings up this image, you know, of an inaction here of someone yeah. who says, you know what, I'm just going to buy less. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that is the best way I can help the oceans, rather than you know becoming this, you know, uh, uh, plastic ocean hero that goes out and you know maybe i don't know does more damage than he or she does good or you know it's just you know just sort of a futile you know i i just i'm not sure that's that's the best way we can spend the money we we want to spend on solving this issue i i love the the comment that you you made in one of your, one of your pieces that no product is greener than the one we didn't buy <laughs> right. I mean, I, that, I, that that sort of sums it up i guess nicer than i just did yeah well, no, 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 <laughs> exactly well, well and you know even reading about some of the ideas that you have of action bias mm. yeah you know, and that that i think those are some really I mean, I think those are some challenging ideas. How, how have those kinds of statements and ideas been received? Um, you know what? Um, I, I got mostly positive feedback on that, on that Guardian op-ed. Um, but other, other than that, yeah, not, mostly people sort of tend to agree when I say, you know, it's 
we we mustn't you know like everyone remembers well maybe not everyone but you know most people would know about the what we call the waste hierarchy waste management hierarchy right reduce reuse recycle mm-hmm. but then somehow we always jump straight to the third one right and everyone wants to fix recycling and so i just want to remind people that you know reduce is the top one for a good reason and it you know it would be a much cheaper way to to tackle plastic pollution if if we all could you know sort of get our heads together and agree that that's that's the you know that's the route we want to go down you talk uh, also in one of your academic articles about the circular economy rebound and one of the dangers of some of the things that we might be producing that actually may be contributing more to the problem. And I'm thinking here of, I think one of your examples is a hybrid, hybrid car, for example. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that sort of circular economy rebound? Yes, absolutely. So the, the you know, the that name has been inspired by um, energy efficiency rebound, right? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a well-known concept. Actually, the idea that becoming more energy efficient might actually increase energy consumption goes back to the 18th century, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Um, you know, it's uh, the original idea has been called Jevons paradox. And uh, this British gentleman Jevons um, observed that when James Watt dramatically increased the efficiency of the steam engine, um, coal the fuel that powers steam engine coal consumption did not go down. It actually went up. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the idea. And so the modern version is called energy rebound. And probably the best known example is that, you know, if you make um, a car more fuel efficient, um, most people would assume that if you double the fuel efficiency of a car, um, fuel consumption will just go down by 50%. Um, but that is very, very unlikely because, you know, doubling the fuel efficiency of a car just means that now driving costs half for mm-hmm. the owner of the of the car. So they will, A, use some of the money to just drive longer distances and also use some of the savings to uh, spend on other goods and services that also have energy footprints. Mm-hmm. So that's called the energy rebound. And I just noted that i think we there's a big danger and a lack of research uh surrounding the the notion that recycling material could do the exact same thing on a material level where um uh, recycling material and having the secondary the recycled material be cheaper than virgin material that Mm -hmm. most people say that that's absolutely necessary um that that will just uh make us consume more material overall rather than reduce virgin material consumption. Um, and that's that's what we call circular economy rebound. Mm-hmm. And that actually that introduces um, a, a really sort of puzzling big statistical problem that I'm trying to get my head around. I know we, we have uh, statisticians here in the, <laughs> in the room. Uh, I'm not one of them, I have to admit. And uh, and that's the idea that how do we 
how do we prove that recycling has reduced virgin material yeah. consumption? Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Exactly, because that's, you know, the logic behind it is counterfactual. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Because we have recycled, you know, we so the, the counterfactual is unobserved. You know, we don't know what would have happened if we hadn't recycled. Yeah. The only thing we do know is that despite all our recycling efforts, uh, virgin material production has keeps going up year after year after year, um, over year over year. And that's true for basically all materials, not just plastic. Plastic, all the metals, you know, every single material, despite our recycling efforts, primary or virgin material production keeps growing. You know, one thing that comes to comes to mind as you're talking about these ideas and the, these these cycles is is also this issue of life cycle assessment. And I and I don't think that people often consider when they're purchasing something that there is a essentially this life cycle of, of what of what's associated with a good with that's with some product. Can you talk about a little bit about what life cycle assessment means? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think you're right, actually, you know, and I would call it something maybe a life cycle awareness, oh. right, that mm -hmm. that would be, a, I think, a wonderful thing to sort of foster in, in the public at large. And that's the idea that, um, you know, if you have a product in your hands, then um, it, it already had a whole history, right? Um, and that's the production history. So, you know, what was involved in making that product? How much waste was being generated in making that product? What kind of emissions were being generated in making the product and transporting, delivering it to you, to your home? So that's sort of the upstream life cycle history of that product. And then, of course, there's a downstream history, right, which is once we're done using that product and you know, like to get rid of it, um, what's going to happen with it? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, you know, sort of the inspiration of that Guardian comic where I, you know, and, and maybe for me to get into that kind of research that I, even as a child, I was kind of puzzled by where, where does all that solid waste go? Yeah. You know, yeah. And does it, does it just disappear? Does it pile up somewhere? So, so that will be the, you know, the downstream life cycle story of that product and i think if if everyone was sort of more conscious or more aware about you know the, the the life cycle story of everything they buy they um it, i think there's it, it gives me reason to think that they might you know make different choices in the future Roland, before we wrap up i just wanted to ask if you had recommendations for students uh who maybe want to consider working in this area? What do they? What do you think they need to do in order to be prepared to do the kind of work you're doing, or maybe even whatever that's going to be, you know, 10, 20 years from now? Oh, that's a <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, well, um, I I I I don't know to what extent my story was unique or is unique, but I you know like I've my training um, was in physics. So actually a trained mm -hmm. physicist, um, you know, and, and of all things, um, my thesis was in theoretical astrophysics. <laughs> so like how, how much more, you know, uh, uh, non-applied can it get and, and impractical? Um, and then I just realized that I, I, I did not want to spend my working life studying stellar objects um, that no one cares about being you know, in, in, 
including increasingly myself. <laughs> and so I just, I just decided that in an ideal world, I would um, marry my personal interests with my professional life, mm-hmm. and and that's just kind of what I what I pursued. And you know, and some people were discouraging, and then others were encouraging. And and I just kept going, and it um, I, I would say it took me about ten years to to achieve that. And sometimes, you know, like in retrospect, ten years feels very short. Yeah. Uh, when you're embarking on a journey, you know, like ten years is a really long time. <laughs> and and maybe that's that's what I, you know, my advice for people that sort of at either beginning of careers or even just sort of considering future careers is that I would say everyone um, overestimates what they can achieve in a year, yeah. but <laughs> underestimate what they can achieve in 10 years. So well just sort well of done. play, play, you know, be willing to play, play a slightly longer game <laughs> than, yeah. than you may want to. Well, that's great. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Roland, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Roland. It's been great. Great chat, chatting to you. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to Stats and Stories. Uh, I'm going to start that over again. I completely lost my train of thought. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.